You're listening to What It's Like with Luce, a podcast highlighting ordinary people doing extraordinary things. I'm your host, Lucy Norris, and on today's episode, I'm chatting to a peak performance coach and business consultant. Growing up in Massachusetts, this week's guest is definitely no stranger to ambition. Setting goals around making it in corporate America from a very young age, it wasn't until he experienced a life-altering accident that he realized his so-called six-figure success was making him miserable. Surviving the near-fatal car crash was just the beginning of the story for the inspiring coach, as he took the terrible trauma as an opportunity to finally live the life he had always wanted deep down. Spreading his message through coaching, speaking, and his podcast that he hosts with friend Kevin, the Hyperconscious Podcast, here's what it's like to be Alan Lazarus. Before we get stuck into the episode, I just wanted to say that if there is a drop in sound quality throughout, I'm very sorry, but in respect of social distancing during COVID-19, I've had to record episodes remotely. We're all just trying our best in this challenging time, so I really hope everyone is staying safe and that you enjoy the episode. Welcome, Alan. Thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me today. Before we dive into the depths of your career journey and um, your passions in life. I'd be really interested to talk a little bit about your experience growing up in Massachusetts and what that was like for you. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I am excited to be here. It sounds like you have some young future entrepreneurs and I love talking to that group, so this is gonna be good. So Massachusetts, what was that like for me? Uh, I'll go way, way back to the beginning. When I was two years old, my father passed away in a car accident. And I start there because yes, I lost something near and dear to my heart for sure. But I also gained something else, which is I I often say I was raised by two mothers. So I had an older sister who was three years older than me and then my mom. And between them two, I grew up very cared for, very loved. And from a very, very young age, I remember, I think I was like anywhere from eight to 10 or so. I really should figure this out. But we drove past a school, a college called WPI. For those of you who don't know WPI, it's Worcester Polytechnic Institute. And my uncle at the time was the track and field coach there. And my mom said that really smart people go there, Alan. You know, you should go there one day. You're really good at math. And so what I didn't realize at the time, but I now do realize, is that she was planting a dream in in my consciousness, in my heart. And it's really kind of cool because she used to always tell me that life is about choices. And when my father passed away, and so my mom's parents were 45, I believe, or so when they had her, she, her older sister is 17 years older than her. Oh, wow. And so back then, my mom's a very young, beautiful woman, and they figured, you know, she'd get married and she'd be, she'd be fine. And my mom wished she had more choices, wished she had focused more on academics, wished she had a, a better career. And so I think from a very young age, she always kind of taught me. And she would always say this thing to me, Alan, you can be a CEO or you can be a farmer. I'm going to love you either way. Um, but if you are a CEO, you can wake up one day and decide to be a farmer. But if you're a farmer, you can't necessarily just wake up and decide to be a Fortune 50 CEO. And so this is nothing, I've, I've said this before and people get offended because farmers work so hard. It's nothing against farmers. My mom was just trying to explain to me a concept when I was a young kid. And the point that I'm making here though, is that if you aim high, you'll have choices. And I've since started saying a quote that I heard from Les Brown, which is people don't fail in life because they aim high and miss. They fail in life because they aim low and hit. And, you know, after between podcasting, speaking, coaching, inspiring, motivating, educating, I've tracked and logged thousands of hours now 
And there's a lot that I don't know, but I can tell you when it comes to success and when it comes to achievement, I see common patterns because we've interviewed hundreds of people that are world-class in their field and life is about choices. And that's really the main, the main point here. But in Massachusetts, for me, I did end up going to WPI. So my mom actually let me take eighth grade off. And she said, if you take eighth grade off, if you promise me, I'll let you take eighth grade off. If you promise me that in high school, you'll get straight A's. And so in this country, there was something called the President's Award, where if you got a 95 GPA or above, in other words, a straight A average, you would, uh, every report card all through high school, you'll get uh, a letter certificate signed by the president. And I ended up, dig- I did end up getting that. I remember through all of high school, I only got one B plus. And so academics was a huge thing for me. Um, I did end up going to WPI, which was really, really cool. And I did electrical and computer engineering undergrad. Then I went into my MBA. And what I realized is that I was good at math. I wanted to make a lot of money so that I would have choices. Money doesn't buy happiness, but it does buy choices. And I kind of went down that path. I remember my dream was to be a Fortune 50 CEO like Steve Jobs. What I didn't realize at the time is what that would make of me. And so I went into corporate America. I did some engineering. I did some global product management. I started a company called Campus Libre, which was like a campus-specific Craigslist for textbooks. I had, you know, I was in a bunch of business competitions and, and really WPI is like a mini MIT. It's like take, you know, it's interesting. I go from Oxbridge, Massachusetts, the small sort of rural town, eighth in my class, super academic, super smart. And then I go to WPI and I go, oh, Okay, everybody here is a genius. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. um, and I, so I struggled in WPI to even, I did end up graduating with high distinction, but I remember some of those engineering courses were brutal. And uh, so then I did corporate America for a while. I job hopped a lot. And eventually I ended up working for a company called Cognix in inside sales. And I started an inside sales team, got promoted to outside sales, and I was selling industrial automation equipment. And there's yeah. this common theme of choices. And Cognex's motto was work hard, play hard. And I used to say work hard, play harder. And so there's been sort of an undertone here that I haven't mentioned yet, which is uh, I drank too much and too often. And in the sales, in college, that's a part of the culture. Certainly in this country, I know you're in Ireland. I know alcohol is a big part of the culture there. Yeah. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying yeah. that I, I definitely, um, I wouldn't say, no one else would say I had a problem necessarily, but I definitely that vice definitely got the best of me. And so I'm 26 years old at the time. And maybe you've read about this. I don't know if you have or haven't, but I get in a car accident. So I'm in New Hampshire with my little cousin. And I think the road stays right. It actually stays left. It's like a cold, dark winter night. And I remember the brightest lights I had ever seen when I looked up from the GPS and it was a lift kitted truck, like an an obnoxiously lift kitted truck coming right at me head on. And and it was my fault. I was supposed to yield and I didn't, but that really messed with me. Fortunately, I was driving a Volkswagen Passat 2004, which I used to call the tank because it was like a steel trap. Mm. Uh, Thank you, German engineering. (laughs) And we were okay. And the airbags did go off. And that shook the snow globe for me because circle back, my father passed away in a car accident when I was two. And I'm 26 at the time. And so I have a very emotional, visceral response to this of like, oh my God, like I was just so filled with regret. I remember sitting in an armchair, drinking whiskey, like questioning everything. And I was just not proud of the way I had lived my life, who I had become and the choices that I had made. And some of those choices really weren't even my own, right? I mean, I went into engineering school because I was good at math and engineers make a lot of money. Like I'm sorry, but that's not a good enough reason to choose an entire life. 
And so I had a lot of regret and I asked myself these tough questions. You know, did I live a life true to myself? Did I chase my dreams? Did I courageously fight for what I believe in? You know, am I proud of the man I became that I love openly, honestly, and fiercely? And, and the thing is, is like, this is the questions we're just going to ask. And there's a lot that I don't know, but what I do know is this because I grew up around it. I grew up my whole life hearing about my dad and nobody talks about how he died. They all talk about how he lived. And that's, what's going to matter. It doesn't matter when or how you're going to die. Life is about choices and it's about how you choose to live. And I think that that's a good place to start. As you've mentioned, a lot of young entrepreneurs and, and, you know, young people trying to find their own unique path in this world. And the last thing I'll say here before your next question is when you're in the dark, I often say emotional pain is guaranteed. What you do about it is not. It's the choices you make when you're in emotional pain that's going to make the biggest difference from what I've found. You can either escape into a vice, Netflix, alcohol, drugs, whatever, or you can develop a virtue when you're in emotional pain. Here's the interesting thing. When you're in emotional pain, as long as you sit with it long enough and you don't try to escape it or wish it away, but you actually go through it, grow through it, you're going to see something you never saw before. For me, I saw a book by Bronnie Ware called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying, but she worked in hospice for eight years with the terminally ill. And she saw these same patterns of regret. I wish, I wish, I wish. I have since, and, and since I read that book, had a flashcard in my pocket every day, all day, always do, with those five regrets. The number one regret of the dying is I wish I had lived a life true to myself and not what others expected of me. And so I think that's a good place to start the interview because that's kind of my main message. My main mission is to not have other people make the mistake that I made. I was super successful from outside standards. You know, I had the beautiful girlfriend, tons of friends, you know, friends from college, friends from high school still, you know, I made 200 grand a year, nearly, nearly 200. And, wow. and uh, you know, I had the money and all that. And it's, it's at the end of the day, I wasn't fulfilled inside. Now I've come to realize how much money you make is not as important as how you make it and then where you invest it. What was it about the whole situation and, and your whole life thus far that, made you feel like you, I guess, had a purpose to share it with people and help people? I mean, I guess what I'm trying to um, pick at is why did you turn to coaching and not just work on it by yourself, if that makes right. sense? So I think this is another thing too. I believe we have a mentor, his name is Evan Carmack, but you might've heard of him. He's a, he's a big YouTuber in this space. And mm -hmm. he said, your purpose comes from your pain. And you know, when you're in pain, I think that's when you're going to hear that intuitive whisper, if you can sit with it. And that's why, you know, when the reverse engineering regret is something that I do every day. So I mentioned those top five regrets and, and every single day I have a reverse engineer regret journal. And so to answer your original question, I always wanted to be into fitness. I always wanted to be a speaker I didn't know it yet. And so there's an interesting thing. Like I remember I wanted to be a model. I remember I was in high school and I said, I wanted to be an Abercrombie model and the whole class laughed at me. And I remember Mrs. Puckett, I'll never forget this. She took me after class and said, you could, you're really good looking. You could do that. Mm -hmm. I don't know where that dream came from. I, but I do know that when you're in emotional pain, that whisper is going to be there still. And so for me, the car accident stripped away any sort of ego. It stripped away any of the shiny objects and, it really got me to question, like, if that was it, 
would I have been proud of the man I became? And, and my answers were no. And then I'll say this. I believe that who you admire leaves clues. So for example, I often ask people like, who are your heroes? And it's interesting because a lot of people don't consciously have heroes. And some people do consciously. Usually a lot of times they'll say my mom or my dad or my uncle or my grandma, but also like heroes in the world, right? So, so for me, Steve Jobs was always a hero. Um, Jim Rohn, Tony Robbins, like these, these certain people. When you really, really admire someone or envy someone, I believe it's your soul trying to tell you, you can do that too. And, you know, Greg Plitt's another hero. He's a fitness guy. The point is this. I have a, a journal specifically where I, writ, I have written out all my heroes, fictional and real. And I have warnings and examples. I have reasons why they're my heroes. And so what are the character traits that I admire about these people? What have they achieved that I could see myself doing? What have they contributed to the world that I could see myself doing? And so I stumbled across not only Bronnie Ware's book after that car accident, but also Tony Robbins' TED Talk. It's still my favorite TED talk of all time. And it's about the six human needs. It's absolute fire. I recommend everyone looks it up. But that's kind of how I uncovered my dream. I don't think that you necessarily have to search for your purpose. I think you have to uncover it by really analyzing your life. Another thing that I did too, just a practical tip, is I went back through my past and I called people up and I asked from your perspective, brutally honest, like what did you notice about me? What did you see about me? What were my strengths and weaknesses? And I just, I just had these hour long conversations with people from college, people from high school, ex-girlfriends. Like I, I, I just did this huge bird's eye view of who I was, who I am, and then who I aspire to be kind of uncovered itself. That's incredible. I'm sh I'd say those conversations were really interesting and you seem to have done a 180 on your life, which I admire so much. And I'm so intrigued to, to, you know, get more into how you did that. Um, and so from the more practical side of things, um, taking away from, you know, the overall mission and what you wanted to achieve, how did you then go about, cause I'd say it was a pretty big transition. I know your thoughts and it were clear, but you know, dropping your whole corporate life that you'd worked so hard to build to then go in a way freelance on a coaching business and on your fitness business. How was that transition for you to leave that life behind? And from a practical side of things, how did you build up the platform that you have today so that you could then share your message with other people? Powerful questions. So I would say the transition was really, really difficult, primarily because like you said, I, I drastically changed in terms of my goals and my core values. And again, this is my bird's eye view now. At the time, I didn't know kind of what was happening. I just was like trying to grow through all this. And so in hindsight, it's very clear to me that I almost overnight, like you said, decided, I decided, okay, I'm going all in on my dreams. I don't care who's anything about it. I know the alternative. I, I did everything I thought was right. Society told me money, choices, all that. I'm going to go all in on, on what is true to my heart. And what I realized, and this is what I tell people now, people say it's about the journey and not the destination. And that is true. But what they don't realize in a lot of cases I've noticed is that the destination you choose dictates the journey in many regards. Let me give you an example. If I'm driving from Boston to Worcester, which is an hour drive, that's very different than Boston to LA. Mm. I've driven from Boston to LA before. 
the places you must go, the places you must travel, the people you must meet, the fears you must face, the skills you must develop. Now, this is just an analogy, but the point is this. If you don't aim high and you don't want much, you don't have to become much. We did an episode one time on goal setting, the seven reasons to set a goal. And what's really cool is that the seventh one, the least important one was to actually get the goal. It was the skills you must develop, the journey it will force you to embark upon, the people you must meet, the fears you must face, you know, the networking you must do, the, the, the adventure. And that's one thing I'll say is choose in advance like I did where you want to go. You got to plug something into the GPS. Now, here's the cool part. That can change. But what I did to answer your original question, I plugged something in the GPS. This is who I am. This is what I'm doing. I will work forever. I have these three statements that I write down every single day. Number one, I am the greatest public speaker, podcaster, and educator to ever live. I actually just put online educator on that. Number two, I am the greatest natural aesthetic men's physique athlete, male model, and peak performance fitness, or peak performance consultant and coach to ever live. And then number three is I am the greatest master of communication, human connection, and positive influence to ever live. Those are my three affirmations, right? I, I often ask my clients and people on shows, like, if a genie, if you had a lamp, you could rub it and a genie could pop out and you could be the best in the world at any three things, what would they be and why? And what's really cool about that question is it gets you to go, oh, I really do want to be good at that. And what people don't realize is that outer success is actually a byproduct of something far deeper. In other words, what's the difference between Marshall Mathers and Eminem? You know, uh, a white kid in a trailer park versus Eminem, world-renowned rapper, right? The difference is he got really good at one thing. Now, obviously, there was other challenges along the way, but he decided in advance, I'm going to be the best rapper I can possibly be. That's just an example everyone can relate to. But the point is this, is mastery. So for me, I decided in advance, I'm going to master those three things, and I'm going to spend most of my life focused on mastering those three things because that's where I believe I can have the greatest impact congruent with my core values. Now, that's me now understanding this. <laughs> so me back then, I was just on the struggle bus. I often say the party bus leads to mediocrity. The struggle bus leads to greatness. So keep pushing. I had someone reach out to me recently uh, via text and said, basically, don't read too far into this, but I want you to know I'm really sorry. I was really hard on you at the beginning of your journey. I didn't understand, and I really wasn't supportive. And he said that was a dick move on my part. Here's what I will tell you. Every association that I had up to that point, friends, etc., were in my life based on who I was then. And when you do a 180 overnight, you're going to get a lot of feedback from people because they love you for who you are now. And if I shift my entire destination overnight and my entire group of core values, like one example is I used to drink a lot. I used to drink often. I shouldn't say a lot, often. And, you know, I would go to parties and I, I would have get togethers and all my college friends and high school friends, all that. I quit drinking. So even that one tiny change changed my association so much. I went all in on fitness. All of a sudden, people who aren't into fitness have an aversion to me a little bit. So it was really, really difficult. If I, I mean, there's a lot of reasons it was difficult, but the main reason why it was difficult is because Everyone in my life, not everyone, but almost everyone gave me a ton. Oh, you're a bodybuilder now. Oh, you're a speaker now. Like I got all that crap from people that I loved and that I thought loved me. When you spend your life appeasing others and then you drastically stop doing that, the growing pains are, are very, very difficult. Um, I will say that growing through that 
I'll give you one story that I think is super powerful. Um, I was super happy once I started to really strip myself of these old habits that I didn't think were serving my greatest level of contribution. And yes, it was really, really hard transition at first, but I remember like a year in, I was living with my girlfriend in Worcester. We were living on a lake and her girlfriends and friends actually texted her saying, your boyfriend is on Snapchat. Like he's so happy all the time. Like he's talking about personal development. Like he's so happy. Like, are you okay? And I remember thinking to myself, I remember she told me this and I'm like, back when I was unhappy, nobody was questioning me because I was, and this is so weird. Nobody questioned me when I worked at Cognex because I was very successful, quote unquote. Nobody questioned me, even though I was very genuinely unhappy inside. But as soon as I went all in my dreams, those questions, oh my God, it was like, everybody was like, is he okay? Like, what's going on? Like when I was unhappy, they weren't concerned for my ex-girlfriend, Courtney. Like, he's really unhappy. Are you okay? Like, that's what it should have been, right? (laughs) Not like, he's just so happy all the time. Like, how are you dealing with that? You know what I mean? Because she, you know, um, wasn't necessarily as happy. And I think that being stupidly happy with who you are and what you do and why you're doing it is like, fairly rare. And so if you go all in on your dreams and you're listening to personal development podcasts and you're reading books and you are not the norm. I mean, just look at the statistics. It's, it's very rare to be into this stuff. And one of my missions is to bring personal development to the masses. And there's a reason, unfortunately, why you kind of, when you do have your dreams and chase your dreams, people think you're crazy. It's because it's very, it's very uncommon, unfortunately. I'd be interested to know a little bit more about, um, where your interest in, in fitness came from, because I know, you know, when you were speaking about growing up, there was a lot of focus on business and academics and all that kind of thing. Um, so where did that motivation behind, as you said, wanting to become the best, you know, um, physique and, and all that kind of thing, where did that motivation come from? So great, great question. I love, I love this interview. So one thing that I think is interesting is that most greatness usually stemmed from insecurity and pain. And when you interview hundreds of people and, and try to pull back the curtain on success and you know, world-class performers like NFL athletes, all that stuff, what you kind of realize is that their adversity became their advantage. In those emotional moments, they chose to develop themselves rather than escape it. And so what's interesting is I believe that I'm, you know, I wouldn't call myself a world-class athlete, but I, I, I'm an athlete now. And I think that that stemmed from a lot of insecurity. So in high school, I was very, very lanky. You know, I was 6'2", 150 pounds, really lanky. And and I was into academics, but in high school, in this country in particular, like, unfortunately, academics, yeah, they're celebrated, but like, it was the athletes that, you know, quote unquote, got all the attention and all the girls. And, and, and it it definitely bothered me because um, being completely honest with myself and transparent, if you if you listen to Tony Robbins' TED Talk, he talks about the six human needs. I, I am significance-driven for sure. Like, you know, and, and guys do tend to be significance-driven. They want to be significant. Mm-hmm. And at the time, now I know that, and now I can, like, check myself when I need that, right? <laughs> but yeah. back then when I was a kid, like, I, I just felt so insignificant. I felt so – I felt like all the athletes were so popular. And even Kevin and I talk about this to this day, uh, my co-host – he was an athlete. He was like an all-star baseball player. He was, he was, and he, everybody loved him for it. And it's like, I was getting straight A's, but that wasn't really valued at the same level, or I guess it, not in the same way. And so I always wanted to be an athlete. And 
I, I did do track and field. I did do cross country. Like I did do athletics, but it never really came supernaturally to me. And I was not, I didn't really have like a big, strong natural physique. I was kind of tall and lanky. And so now I remember after that car accident, I just, I was 160 pounds skinny fat. Like I was six foot two, drank too much and too often. And I, after that, I just went all in. I was like, that's it. Like, I'm, I'm not proud of who I've become. I'm not proud of what I'm doing with my life. I'm not proud of my physique. Like I'm sick and tired of mediocrity. Like I'm going to go pro. And I don't mean go pro in any ego sense. I mean, I'm, I'm going all in on personal development. And I, to this day, think fitness is the greatest form of personal development. Like whether you like it or not, you are a walking, talking billboard. And in my PowerPoints and, and on stages, I, I speak on fitness a lot. And I all, often put up this slide of like, okay, here's a, a picture of me back then what do you know about this person right now? And it's okay. You know, there's a book called Blink where he, talk, they, he talks about snap judgments, how our subconscious can basically make, draw conclusions very quickly based on very little data. Now, this is unfortunate. Don't judge a book by its cover, seriously, but our subconscious does automatically. That's the only way it knows how to survive in an environment. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is, what are the character traits of this person that you know immediately? I also put up a picture of my buddy, Matt. My buddy, Matt, is you know, clean cut, extremely in shape. What do you know about him? And everybody says, okay, work ethic. Yes. He obviously works hard. Fitness is really challenging. Being in shape is really challenging and it's getting increasingly challenging because all the things that are bad for being in shape are being perpetuated in our faces constantly. Here's an interesting thing that I don't think people talk enough about. When you're, when the pain is great enough, you will change. I'm going to try to try to give everyone a, a quick framework here that I think will help them tremendously. I am all for not complaining, but what I've realized is that one of the reasons people are complaining is that they're actually trying to motivate themselves. Let me give you an example. If I just ran a marathon in a desert and you sell water, I'm in pain. I need you. I'm going to do whatever I can to buy your water. So now that I've been coaching businesses, what I've started to realize is that human beings are motivated most by getting out of discomfort. And so here's the interesting thing though. If you don't know much about fitness, you're going to have an aversion to it because for me, my car breaks down. I know nothing about cars. I don't care about cars. Like I never have, like, I'm just not, I'm not a mechanic. My car breaks down. I don't know what to do. I have an aversion to it because I don't know how to fix it. I honestly feel like that's why education is so powerful because you'll always fear that which you don't understand. And I want to increase people's level of understanding because once you understand how something works, why something works, now you won't have an aversion to it. People say, I'm not motivated in fitness. It's like, I wouldn't be motivated either if nothing I did ever worked. What I've found is people are doing the wrong thing. But to answer your original question, why did I go all in on fitness? It, it stemmed from insecurity about not being proud of my physique, not being I have a lot of feminine features. I'm sure you've seen pictures of me. Like I was, I wasn't proud of the physique that I had. I didn't feel strong, fit and confident. And I'll say this, even though it's a little controversial, being in shape is the best. It is literally the best. Anyone who tells you it's not the greatest thing ever is not, is lying. Like money doesn't buy happiness. Health definitely does. Biochemically, when you wake up feeling like a million bucks, you're going to have better relationships. You're going to be more motivated you're going to feel better about yourself. You're going to have self-esteem. Like fitness is the best thing ever. And I will say that because I've been on both ends of it. The other thing I wanted to pick your brain about, because from an outsider 
I guess just looking in, just scrolling, you know, through Instagram at the moment, there seems to be quite a lot of business coaches or motivational coaches popping up. I don't know mm-hmm. if it's because of COVID or everyone's trying to get online or, or what it is, but how do you deal with the idea of comparison or competition? And did you ever worry that potentially you were entering into a saturated market from a business side of things? Because, you know, at the end of the day, we all do have to make a bit of money to be able to live. So when you were looking at turning this into a lucrative business that you could live off of so that you could then be happy every day, did that aspect of other people doing it, competition, comparison, ever make you doubt your ideas or, or how do you deal with that? That is a fire question. So I will be transparent here in the sense that I, I don't struggle with confidence that often anymore. I have struggled with confidence in the past regarding my physique and, you know, being attractive to women and things like that way in the past. But when it comes to my own ability to succeed, I, I'll be honest with you, my, my ability to manifest I'm not really that concerned. I remember Kevin, a uh, quick story. We were driving down to Florida to interview one of our close friends, Eddie Panera. He's a close friend now, um, even though at the time he wasn't. And he turned to me, we were driving back. It was like the longest day ever. Five hours there in the morning, interview, you know, a bunch of different things, workout, then drive back five hours to, from uh, Jacksonville, Florida to Boca Raton and back. Wow. And it was late at night. We're listening to like some really melancholy music and, and just kind of like taking in the, uh, the straight roads and the sunset. And he turned to me and he said, you know, man, without all this hard work, it would really suck if this didn't work out. And in my head, I turned to him and I said, honestly, Kevin, I've never even considered that. And he still tells this story to, the, to this day because my belief, I, I honestly just, I got to be frank, I don't struggle with self-belief. I don't. As a matter of fact, but here's the interesting thing. We just did an episode on strengths and weaknesses and how every strength actually comes with a weakness. What I will tell people is that I have struggled with arrogance. So we have this concept we call the drive to five and we just did a training on it the other week and it it landed really, really well, which is cool. The drive to five is simple. So he struggled with self-doubt his whole life and I've struggled with ego. He thinks the number one thing holding people back is, is lack of belief, lack of confidence. I think the number one thing holding people back naturally is ego. So what we've realized is that we're all kind of ready or lefty. Yeah. Um, you, if you have undying self-belief and you're listening right now, your, I can tell you right now your greatest challenge is thinking that you're going to win by default. It's not having mentors. It's not reading enough books. It's, it's thinking that you're great already. Biggest, biggest pitfall ever. And that's me too. If you struggle with self-doubt, here's the drive to five. The tens, this is the best way to describe it. Picture zero to 10 and in the middle is five. Five is the truth. Zeros don't believe they deserve a mentor or they're too afraid to get one. Tens don't believe they need one. Both are wrong. And so the zeros, the people who struggle with self-doubt, you got to start small and build confidence through action. You got to create evidence that you can succeed. Tens, you need to wake up and get some feedback, okay? If you think you're a good speaker already, go speak in front of a thousand people and then see how you feel about yourself. Trust me, I've been there. And so I don't feel like I struggle with imposter syndrome or any sort of self-confidence or self-belief issues when it comes to this dream. And I really haven't struggled much with that. What I have struggled with is thinking that it's all just gonna work out. And so for me, the way that I 
you know, worked on that or mitigated that is I got around people who understand me and Kevin, for example, we, we drive to five every time, you know, I think every time we go into speech, almost every single time before it, I think it's going to go awesome. I'm a serial optimist. I think everything's just going to work out. This is just my default. He thinks it's going to go horribly. So he gets the pain before, right? Perception versus reality. I think everything's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. He thinks it's going to be, you know, a struggle. It's going to be a challenge. So we got to make sure everything's good. We got to make sure we're on time. We got to make sure we're early, all that stuff. So he is very nervous before the speech. I'm not. After the speech, he feels like a million bucks because he thought it would go terribly and it actually went really well. I feel humbled, right? So if you're a 10, you need humility and consistent action will humble you consistently. And if you struggle with self-doubt, action will actually build self-confidence because if you think everything's going to go poorly and then it doesn't, you're going to, it's a, it's a perception. It's just a human biological cognitive bias that we all have. We all either, and it's honestly a protection mechanism. Mm. People who think they're great by default, they're trying to like build their self-esteem and protect themselves from taking action. It's so crazy to think about life the way that you do, you know, and and the fact that we all have so much to learn and we can always be bettering ourselves so much. And I love that dynamic that you have with your your co-host and the different um, takes on life. It's so, it works so well. It's so nice. Um, and quickly just touching on that, I know you've mentioned it throughout the whole interview, but um, for anyone that hasn't heard of the Hyperconscious podcast, can you just give um, a very quick overview of of what that is how it started and and what your mission is with that as well yeah so at the very beginning of the journey i had a podcast called conversations change lives i was looking back at my life after that car accident and i thought to myself like what made the difference really between who i became some of the ambitions that i've had different things like that some of the people i grew up with didn't climb quite so high and i realized it was mentors it was great conversations with great people and so i wanted to create a platform where someone could be a fly on the wall and really learn about life from someone who's living it, right? So it's like, if I was a young kid and I wanna be an engineer, why not actually listen to an interview about what that person's life is actually like rather than, oh, they make 80 grand a year, right? So then I met Kevin and Kevin had a podcast called the Hyperconscious Podcast. And now again, hindsight's twenty twenty. it's obvious to me that we had a very similar mission with similar core values but we had different core competencies, different strengths and weaknesses. His strengths are my weaknesses. My strengths are his weaknesses. It worked out really well. And I believe that's the law of attraction at work. As long as you have the courage to be authentic. That said, we, for the longest time, if you went back and listened to episode one through, I think 17, it's welcome back to the hyperconscious podcast meets conversations change lives. <laughs> and so we had two podcasts. We were kind of, and then eventually it was like, dude, why aren't we, why aren't we a team? Um, he, I was actually his first guest on his show and he was the first guest on my show which was really cool and then it was just very synchronistic um, we were very drawn to each other we grew up together and what's interesting and this is an interesting story is we grew up in the same high school and we hated each other now I shouldn't say we hated each other he hated me and this is an interesting notion because he's a, he was a zero on the drive to five so insecure people think that confident people are arrogant arrogant people think that insecure people are soft or whatever it's strength and warmth it's okay we we are all righty or lefty and there's no right or wrong but there is right or wrong for you and so what i often say to people is of all the things in life to get get understanding of all the things to get rid of get rid of entitlement and so kevin didn't like me but he also didn't know me and in his defense i was a little arrogant to be completely frank so if you are super self-confident develop humility and work on that 
if you are in super self-doubt, develop confidence and work on that. We just did an episode on that. To answer your original question, again, I know I'm long-winded here. The hyperconscious podcast is about, so if you look up hyperconscious in the dictionary, it, it means acutely aware. Mm-hmm. And so one of the reasons why Kevin and myself ended up with success. So we both made six figures. We both had what society deemed success, but we didn't like our lives and we didn't like the men we'd become. And we luckily learned that from a young age. You know, people say money doesn't buy happiness, but sometimes you have to get the money to realize it really doesn't. And what I should, what I think that line should be is money doesn't buy fulfillment because I actually think happiness, the framework is a little misunderstood. It's like if we're all shooting for happiness, but we define happiness wrong, we're all shooting for something with a misunderstanding. Hyperconscious means acutely aware. In other words, when you change the way you think, you'll change the way you live and you'll change the results in your life. And that's kind of in a nutshell what the show is about. We pull back the curtain on world-class performers to figure out what it really took. It's been a hell of a journey so far. We just surpassed episode 360, so it's been fun. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. <laughs> I have a long way to go till then. <laughs> um, touching on that a little bit, I'd be interested to know um, what your future goals are both for your businesses, but I guess then for yourself too, in a few years or, you know, even at the end of, of this quarantine um, section of life we're all going through, uh, what would you really like to see yourself do? So in my speeches, I pull up a slide of, of Jack Sparrow with the compass. I, I remember that scene where they're on the ship and it's like, how are we supposed to find an island that no one can find with a compass that doesn't point north? And Mr. Gibbs turns to Orlando Bloom's character and says, ah, we're not trying to, or the compass doesn't point north, but we're not trying to find north, are we? So the, the question you just asked me is super powerful. And the reason why I'm telling you, it, it's like, if you're holding that compass right now, the first thing I'll say is back in college, there was this website called Stumble Upon. And you'd basically get on a webcam, you'd do something silly, and then you'd just stumble upon other webcams and you'd, you'd see other people doing silly stuff. And I think that's how a lot of us live our life. We think we're going to stumble upon our dream relationship. We think we're going to stumble upon our dream career. We think we're going to, no, lifestyle design means choosing in advance what you want, why you want it, who you must become to achieve it, making sure all of that is congruent with your core values. And what am I aspiring to now? The reason why I preface this is I'm holding that compass, right? And what's interesting is you are sailing towards an island that no one else can see. We had to imagine cars when there was only horses. We had to imagine planes when there was only cars. We had to imagine spaceships when there was only airplanes. What are we imagining now? The point is this, like whatever it is that you imagine, it is uniquely yours. So when do you start building the house? Once it's already designed in your mind. I think where people get tripped up by this is that they don't understand that it can change. It will change. It will grow and evolve as you do. So my current aspirations, I'm looking at a vision board right now that's up in my room and it's got a bunch of different goals on it. And I think there's four types of goals. There's results goals. I think there's process goals. I think there's growth goals. And I think there's philanthropic goals. And so what are some of my goals now? I will say that maybe I'm weird. I don't know. But for me, I'm thinking about my decade now. I'm thinking about how I want to look, feel, say, think, do, believe in a decade already right now. And I reverse engineer that. And this is what I do for my clients too. Number one, we get clear on their decade, not based on what they think they can achieve, but based on what they actually want. Not based on what you've seen or what you believe is possible. I mean, based on like a genie, rub a lamp, that thing. Then number two, design a system of success based only on the top leverage points that you must do every day. There's a great book called Today Matters by John Maxwell. Very simple concept. The key to your long-term success lives in your daily routine. So what must you be doing? 
we create a system of success. I call it my daily dozen. And then number three, we track it. So each one of my clients has a peak performance spreadsheet, PPT, peak performance tracking. And they go in and they cash out once per night of like, did I do this or not? Zero, 0 0.5 or one. And they define each of those line items and what they are. And that way each week we dial in their system and I can see where their bottlenecks are. And to get back to your original question, what do I want for my decade? I've kind of already told you, I want to positively impact. There's that great quote by Steve Jobs. The people who are crazy enough to believe that they can change the world are the ones who do. I genuinely, and my girlfriend's the same way, we intend on changing history. And what do I want to do rather than just some phrase? I want to bring personal development to the masses. Stop with the shiny object syndrome. Stop wanting all the results. Want the person you must become to achieve it and develop yourself and contribute beyond yourself. Wow. You've got a, a busy decade ahead of you, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. you know, it sounds incredible. And the work that you've done already, I'm sure has changed so many lives and it must feel so crazy to, I don't know, get back in touch with people after you've done some work with them and, and see the changes that you've made. I just have one last question. If I could put your 10 year old self in front of you today, having been through everything you've been through in your life, also in your career, um, and just the overall picture in general, what's the biggest piece of advice you'd give your 10 year old self moving forward in life? Mm. Powerful question. I would somehow get through to that young man that emotional pain and adversity is guaranteed. What you do about it is what's going to matter. Life is about choices. It's not what happens to you. It's what you choose to do about it. Make sure you're making your choices consciously, intentionally, and based on your heart. Make heart-driven choices and then use your mind to strategize, but not the other way around. I think that's incredible advice. Thank you so much for coming on and speaking with me today. I've learned so much. Um, but yeah, I just really appreciate your time and for allowing me to share your story. Lucy, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, please rate, share and leave a comment if you like what you hear. And don't forget to follow at What's Like Pod on Instagram and Facebook. To speak with Alan and find out more about the services he offers, visit the links provided in the show notes. You'll also find a list of the resources mentioned in the episode there as well. I'll be back on Thursday with more inspiring stories. But for now, this has been What It's Like with Luce.